Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would to find your copy of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 6. In just a moment, we're going to read the rest of the chapter. We dealt with uh, verses 1 through 8 last week, so we'll read verses 9 through 20 in just a moment. Maybe you found yourself in a place where you're not sure of God's promises, or you can't remember all the promises God's made to you. came across this story this week in my study about a, an old gentleman, an old Christian man who is in a lot of distress as he lay on his deathbed, and he looked at his pastor who was there visiting with him, and he said this, For years I have relied on the promises of God, but now in the hour of death, I can't remember a single one to comfort me pastor realizing that um, the devil was trying to discourage this man at this particular time in his life, looked at him and he said this, brother, do you think that God will forget any of his promises? The man finally got a smile over his face and exclaimed joyfully, praise the Lord, I can fall asleep in Jesus and trust him to remember them all and bring me safe to heaven. Folks, uh, last week's text of Scripture was a warning. It was intentional, an intentional warning from the author there of Hebrews. But he doesn't finish the chapter in a place of warning. He finishes the chapter in a place of encouragement, motivation to build our faith and to strengthen our faith. Strengthen them on what? Well, ultimately on the promises of God, on His greatness and His goodness. And our text, our title of our sermon today is Jesus is a greater promise. He is the promise of God in which all of the other promises of God find their affirmation in Him. Let's read this passage of Scripture and we're going to look at four encouragements from this text that should kind of deepen our faith and strengthen our faith as followers of Christ. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, though we speak in what way? The way of warning and the challenge to one's faith that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 8. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better, better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that he has set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Four encouragements that I find from the text. Encouragement number one is this. We can be encouraged because of God's 
faithfulness working through us. Speak to you in this way, the writer says, but I have something better for you. Or we can be assured of better things for you, the writer says, because the readers are beloved. That term of endearment is the exact same word used in the uh, Greek language when the father said to the son at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's a statement that says to us that we as God's people are beloved of God. It's a statement where the writer... Uh, who is probably a pastor, is saying to these readers, you're beloved by me. We care about you deeply. It's a term I've used speaking as your pastor to you as a congregation. We're beloved. You're beloved. I care about you as a congregant, as a church member, as a guest, as a visitor. We care for one another. And, And the writer says, you are beloved. God knows you. He cares about you. He knows what you're going through and where you are. And beloved, we feel sure of better things. That phrase could be indicative or really is indicative of the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Better things. Jesus is better than the Old Testament. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the sacrificial systems. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than all of those things. We can be assured of better things for you, the readers, the original readers, even though they were tempted to turn from their faith in Christ and go back to Old Testament patterns of behavior... The writer writer is assured of better things. Better things, why? Notice why. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, I know some of our Sunday school classes discussed last week's text. And I know some of you came and heard last week's sermon. And and I don't know how many of you I convinced as far as the interpretation I used last week. I, I still think... That it, it fits, I think it fits the context for it to be a loss of rewards for a follower of Jesus who, who does not remain faithful to Christ. I think that fits the context. But nevertheless, wherever we land on what the previous eight verses mean, verses 9 and 10 encourage us to remain steady and steadfast in our faith. And if you have any lack of assurance about anything regarding your salvation... Maybe you're a reader last week and you read through that text and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, do, do I really feel saved this week? Do I feel converted? Do I really think I could lose my salvation? What, what do I do in wrestling with that text? The writer says, God will not be unjust as to forget what? The work of his people in honor of the name of the Lord and in service to the greater congregation. When God invites us to experience assurance, he doesn't invite us to look at some arbitrary, subjective methodology and say, okay, look in your heart and see if you feel saved enough this week. See if you feel right enough with him. No, God won't overlook. Notice what he says. God will not overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, God goes to something concrete. He goes to something direct and specific. Uh, The writer of uh, 1 John in his letter says something very similar to this. He says, if we want to know we're converted, do we have love for other people? Bottom line. And by the way, Jesus said this in John 13. All men will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you know for sure that you're saved? No. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. One of the best ways for us to be assured of our faith is that we honor the name of Jesus by serving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ through love. I think this phrase, this, this sermon is tailor-made for Wilkesboro Baptist this week. Uh, I had mentioned on a Wednesday night the other, the other week how, how many people in our church were struggling with some sort of health complication. Some, in, some anticipating surgery, some just had surgery, some are still in the hospital, some are in rehab, some are traveling and are dealing with COVID. I mean, there's all sort of things going on in the life of our church. And in the last like 10 days or so, I know of church members who have visited people in the hospital, who have stayed with people in the hospital. I know of church members who have taken meals to people who have had surgery. I know of church members who have called and checked on church members in the life of the church. I know of people who have visited and texted and messaged and been encouraged and prayed for. And several of those church members have given me updates. Now, I just want to tell you, as a pastoral staff, we've been to see folks in the hospital. As elders, we've been to see folks in the hospital and ministered and prayed for them. As deacons, we've ministered and prayed for. But I'm talking about just regular church members, everyday church members like you, have ministered to people in our congregation. What does that say? It says God doesn't overlook those works of love and service for his people. And if we're looking for assurance, we can be assured of God's, uh, uh, we can be assured because of God's faithfulness working through us to show love to one another. That is a glorious affirmation of God working through his people. Let me move to a second encouragement from the text. We can have assurance by imitating those with patient faith. Imitating those with patient faith. Look at verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I want that assurance, don't you? I want to be, I want to be when I'm on my deathbed, fully assured of the promises of God. Fully assured that I'm going to make it into the end because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I want to hold on to that. I don't want to wander and waver in my faith. I don't want to waffle in unbelief as I get older and and struggle maybe with my memory or struggle with any other capacity in my life. I want to be assured until the end. But how do we make sure that we are assured until the end? Notice what he says. We are to show the same earnestness to have and hold the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish that is spiritually lazy. Same word used in the latter part of chapter 5 that we looked at last week, dull of hearing, so that you may not be lazy or dull of hearing, but you may imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So how do we make sure we hold on to this assurance through the end? Well, we imitate, we earnestly imitate those who have faith and patience. In other words, the application for us as Christians, if we want to make sure, if we want to hold on to the assurance of our faith, if we want to make sure it's steadfast in our own hearts and lives, then what do we do? We earnestly imitate those with faith and patience. Earnestly imitate. We're all earnest about what we like. Some of you really love your job, and you are earnest about completing the task in front of you. You're a hard worker. Your work ethic cannot be questioned. Some of you are earnest about your hobbies, the things you really like to do. You're going to do them with detail. You're going to do them with clarity. You're going to do them with patience, with deliberation. But few of us are regularly earnest about what we don't like to do. Some of you are married to someone who does not like to earnestly clean. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have kids. I don't know any kid that likes to earnestly clean. 
if they have to clean and have a chore, it's just they have to clean and have a chore, and they'll do it maybe good this week and terrible the next week. It's not very earnest. What we're to do as Christians is not to imitate faith and patience haphazardly. A little bit this week and maybe a little better next week. No, it's to be a regular, earnest endeavor on our parts. Let me illustrate what I mean by earnestness. It's doing what we do to be faithful to the job regardless of what surrounds us or regardless of the circumstances. There was a situation that took place many years ago in World War II. A warship by the name of the Astoria uh, was a United States Army um, flagship, or United States Navy flagship, rather, in World War II. And it was at the Battle of uh, Savo Island uh, facing the Japanese. And, and that particular warship, one of the, one of the um, uh, guns exploded in that particular battle. And uh, signalman third class Elgin Staples was thrown off the warship. Shrapnel was thrown into his legs from the explosion. The only thing that kept him afloat in the water was a particular life belt that the, uh, the Navy had issued to all of the sailors on the ship. Eventually another ship came by and rescued him from the water and he was restored to, uh, to the Astoria. Uh, but because the Astoria was damaged in battle... The captain tried to run the ship aground in order to kind of save the sailors. That didn't work. The ship ended up sinking. And for the second time, uh, Staples was thrown into the ocean again. And the only thing that was keeping him afloat was the life belt that he was wearing that came from the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company in Akron, Ohio. Eventually, another ship came by and rescued the 500 or so sailors that had been in the water uh, Ensign, uh, the Ensign Staples was sent to hospital, he was treated, and he was discharged from active duty because of the damage to his legs. He went back home to Akron, Ohio, and he wanted to talk to his mom because his mom worked for the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company in Akron, Ohio. And the reason he wanted to talk to his mom is he noticed on the belt that he was wearing the life belt that inflated and saved his life, he noticed on that life belt that there was a number on the belt that he was wearing. And he wanted to find out why in the world there was a specific number on that particular life belt. So he asked his mom about, about that. She said to him that the higher-ups in the company wanted every employee in the company to take ownership of their job to be held accountable. And so every employee had an employee number, and they had to mark every belt with the number of the employee that was responsible for making the belt. And he said, well, I memorized the number. I mean, it, it saved my life. I was, I, was, I was sitting there looking at it, memorized the number, and he quoted the number out to his mom. And his mom said, that's my number. His mom made the belt that saved his life in the ocean. In a war half a world away. Because she did her work earnestly. Folks, that's the way we're to live out our Christian faith. We're to earnestly imitate those who have patient faith. What do I mean by patient faith? Well, he illustrates that with Abraham. We're to imitate, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying... Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The quote there, surely I will bless you, surely I will multiply you, comes from Genesis twenty-two seventeen, 17, 
which is in that wonderful scene, that story, when God told Abraham, take your son Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice Isaac. Of course, you know the rest of the story where Abraham was about to, but God stayed his hand and said, don't sacrifice Isaac. I know that you trust me. I know that you follow me. And that's when God reiterated the promise to him, I will bless you. I will multiply you. But I want you to remember that that took place many, many, many years after God's initial encounter with Abraham. See, sometimes what we want in our Christian life is for our faith, it's for our spiritual growth, it's for our maturity to happen overnight. We, we want it to happen in like a microwave. We want to be able to you know, stick something in the microwave and, okay, our faith is there. We want to be able to run through a drive-thru and get a, get a drive-thru meal of our Christian experience. We want our, our faith to be fast food-like. Or microwave-like. But it's not often like that. Most of the time, it takes a long time for God to build into our lives faith and development and spiritual maturity. Here's how I know that to be true. When God reiterated that promise to Abraham, that's at least 40 years after God's initial interaction with Abraham, when Abraham left the nation, left Ur and went out to the promised land. Abraham, by the way, started his journey with God at 75 Okay, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Uh, how many of you are under 75 or older, over 75? But God started Abraham's journey of following him at 75. It was not until Abraham was 86 that he had his first son by Hagar. That was Ishmael. Maybe not the best decision in hindsight through all of those circumstances. And then it was when Abraham was 99, 24 years after leaving Ur of the Chaldees... When God said to Abraham, I want to show you and affirm to you the covenant I've made with you through the sign of circumcision. So Abraham was 99 years old when he and all the men that were in his, his troop, all the men that were with him were circumcised. It was not for another year that, that God gave him the, the, the child of promise, Isaac. So Abraham was 25 years removed from the first time God promised something till the time God brought about the child of promise, Isaac, to Abraham. 25 years. Another 15 years, probably, between the time of Isaac's birth and the event when Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, or in plans of sacrificing him, in celebrating and honoring and worshiping God. 40 years. 40 years of Abraham patiently having faith in God and in God's promises. Folks... What are we to imitate? We're to imitate the reality that sometimes while we want our life's journey to happen overnight, we want our spiritual maturity to happen overnight, God has a long view. He's building faith in us one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time, and sometimes multiple, multiple years at a time. Let me give you a third encouragement. We can hold fast Hold fast because of God's promises. Notice the next few verses. For people swear, verse 16, by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it, what, with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled, might, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to what? To hold fast... To the hope set before us. So we can hold fast. We can hold on tightly to the hope and the assurance that God has promised us. Why can we hold fast? We can hold fast because of the absolute assurances that God's promises bring us. 
The writer here uses this analogy. He says, God, by two unchangeable things, affirms his promise to us, affirms his promise to Abraham. He took an oath. God took an oath by himself. He said, there's nothing greater. You swear by something greater. Like if we were to take an oath, we would take an oath on the Bible. If we were in a court of law, I'd swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because we acknowledge that the Bible is God's authoritative word. It's truthful. And so we are swearing by something greater than us to tell the truth. Well, there's nothing greater than God. So God swore by himself to make an oath to Abraham. Now that's a fascinating thing in and of itself. Because if God broke a promise, he would cease to be God. Can I just say that again? If God broke a promise, he would cease to be God. God only needs to say something once in order for it to be assured. God has never broken a promise, never will break a promise, never will fail or flail. He'll never missay something, misstate something. He won't say, oh man, I'm really sorry, I wasn't considering this. And so he'll never do that. God's promises are certain once God says something. That's why the writer says, by two unchangeable things, the first unchangeable thing is that God made a promise. God's promise is enough. But not only did God make a promise, and that is enough, God swore an oath and said, I promise that I will keep my promise. He didn't have to do that. He went above and beyond what he had to do to give some encouragement to Abraham. Why did he do that? So that Abraham would know for certain that he could trust the promises of God. And the writer picks up on this uh, illustration. And the reason he does is because these Hebrew background or Jewish background Christians hearing this encouragement to trust the promises of God, they would have known that not only did God make a promise to Abraham, and not only did God swear an oath to Abraham, but God spent thousands of years of Jewish history keeping the promise he made to Abraham. I mean, if you go back and read Genesis, God made the same promise to Isaac that he made to Abraham, same promise to Jacob that he made to Abraham and Isaac, and you see how God took his people to Egypt and rescued them through Joseph, and then brought the people of Israel out of Egypt into the land of promise, gave them the land of promise, gave them the kings and David and Solomon, and of course the people of Israel disobeyed and they flailed and they sinned and they committed idolatry. They went off in exile, but what did God do? He brought them back out of exile and they were back in their homeland. So Jesus could walk through and teach and preach and communicate with the Jewish people that God had kept his promise to for more than 1,500 years of Jewish history. So what is he saying to the readers then? He's saying to the readers then and to us today, God keeps his promises. God will never break a promise. Whatever promise he's made in Scripture to you and to me, he's not going to break that promise. He can't break that promise. He won't break that promise. And so we can hold on to that promise. Some of you, some of us, have struggled mightily in our lives. We've had circumstances outside of our control that have brought us grief and sadness and difficulty. Some of us have gone through situations, are going through situations internally where we're focused on on the worries and the fears and the frets and the things that are going on around us, and, and we are really struggling. That's why the writer put it this way. He said, we have, uh, we who have fled for refuge. There are some times that all we can ever do is go to God for refuge. We don't have any other answer. We don't have any other hope anywhere else. We fled for refuge and we have fled and we're holding on. We're doing our best to hold on to those promises that God has given us. I want to encourage you for a moment though. It's not the strength of our grip on God's promises that matter. 
It's the certainty of the promise that matters. You may have wavered. You may have struggled. Go back and read Abraham's story. He did. He was up and down in his faith. Man, he had some really big moments of belief. And then he had some relatively small situations in life, as we read them, you know, 3,500 years removed from the events, relatively small situations, going to Egypt and telling, you know, a lie that his wife was his sister and, and all that. And he did that again with Abimelech. I mean, like, like, Abraham, you can believe God to give you a son when you're 100 years old? You can believe God to go through circumcision. You can believe God to go up on the mountain and sacrifice Isaac. But you can't believe God to protect your wife when you go to a foreign land. I mean, it, it, it just it's mind-blowing. Guess what? That's us. There are some big things you've believed God for. And then what do we have struggle with? Maybe some of the little things that we have difficulty believing God for. And sometimes we lose our grip. Sometimes we're not, not holding on as tightly as we need to. I just want to remind you. Even if you let go, God hasn't let go of you. Jesus said we're in his hands, John chapter 10. No one can take us from his hand. No one can take us from the Father's hand. It is not the the strength of our faith, the strength of our grid that matters. It is the certainty of the promise of God. And that is a tremendous encouragement. Some of us, our faith wavers and we struggle with assurance. Quite frankly, because we're looking too much internally. It is right, folks that we do spiritual examination on a regular basis. That, that's healthy. It's healthy for you to look at your lack of faith and sinfulness. It's healthy for me to acknowledge that because we're to then bring that to the Lord in confession and repentance and, and come back to Him. We acknowledge sin every time we sing and pray and offer confession in our worship service. I preach about it regularly. It's not wrong for us to acknowledge that. But here's what happens when we look too much at our situation and look too much at our sin and look too much at our shortfalls and look too much at our failings, we miss the glorious promise of God and His greatness and His majesty. In a wonderful book entitled Assured, Greg Gilbert put it this way. He said, The more trustworthy and faithful you learn God to be, the more you will trust Him and the more certain you will be in that trust. What this means in the most practical terms is that you need to take specific action to remove your eyes from yourself and plant them on God. Read books about God, about theology, about who God is and what He's done, and read them for God's own sake. As you broaden your vision of God, you will find that your love and your awe of Him are deepening, and the result will be that you will trust Him more. Your certainty that He will move heaven and earth to keep His promises will solidify. Even more, make sure you are a vital contributing member of a local church. Gather with brothers and sisters who are themselves engaged in the fight. Sing hymns of praise to God. Hear His word read and preached. Lift up your voice with them in prayer. And what you will find is that the fellowship with other believers will remind you of God's promises, will spiritually stabilize you, and will reinvigorate you to continue in your Christian experience. Maybe you were the one that needed to hear our congregation sing that God is steadfast. And guess what? If we all stand here and sort of sing it, halfway sing it, don't sing it at all, then maybe some of us have a right to wonder if we really believe that. You know what happens when we sing that like it's true? Because it is true, by the way. We're singing an affirmation of God's promise from Scripture. You know what happens when we sing it like it's true? We testify to everyone around us that the promises of God 
or yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The promises of God are certain and fulfilled, and we don't have to waver in those promises of God. Robert Murray McShane, who I use his devotional plan regularly, he put it this way. He said, for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every time you're tempted to look internally at your grief, sadness, sorrow, difficulty, wavering uh, circumstances, situations, temptations, sins, flaws, and short failings, take ten looks at Jesus. That's why we preach the promises of Jesus. That's why we sing the promises of Jesus. And guess what, Christian? That's why we ought to look at the promises of Jesus. Encouragement number four is all about Jesus. We can be anchored in hope because Jesus is the greater promise. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise from, from his promise to Abraham all the way down to generations of Christians later to us today, the greatness is found in Jesus. Look at verse 19. We have this. What's this? The promise of God. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Sure. Steadfast. It, it will not fail. It will not let go. Anchor of the soul. A hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. As a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A sure and steadfast anchor. Ships need anchors, folks. A ship without an anchor is a ship that is destined to be destroyed on the ocean. Because it, it doesn't have a way to stabilize itself. A Christian without an anchor is destined to be blown around by the winds and the waves and the storms of life. But we don't have to be anchorless. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, and his name is Jesus. The writer uses another illustration, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. I mentioned last week in my studies that commentaries were all over the place with how they dealt with Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. Almost all the commentaries, however, agree that this phrase means that uh, that, that holy of holies curtain that took place, uh, it was built for the tabernacle, all the way back in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was a place where the people of God worshipped God. It was a place where they sacrificed, where they celebrated, where they gathered, where they offered their sacrifices. And it had three dimensions. It had an outer court, it had the holy place, and it had the holy of holies. Anybody, any, any follower of God, essentially could go into the outer place of the tabernacle. The priest could go into the holy place and offer sacrifices. But only once a year could the high priest go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and all for the Day of Atonement sacrifice. When they went in behind the curtain, they had to make sure they were garbed fully and the high priest's garb contained bells at the bottom of their, uh, their robes so that anybody standing outside the curtain could hear those bells move. If the bells stopped moving for long enough, then the high priest had a rope tied to his leg because nobody could go in after the priest and maybe the priest was not didn't confess his sins, didn't honor God, and, and he had been struck dead for his lack of uh, reverence before God. That was the, the possibility. And so if he had died, they would have pulled him out by the, by the ankle with the rope that was tied to it. Behind the curtain here references that Day of Atonement picture of the Holy of Holies curtain. Only once a year could the high priest go behind there and offer a, a sacrifice, meaning that... that God cannot be approached, could not be approached in the Old Testament unless he was approached through a high priest on the Day of Atonement. That's the picture. But what the writer of Hebrews says is that our hope 
has entered the holy place, the inner place behind the curtain. And watch this, where Jesus, Jesus is our hope, has gone as a forerunner. So here's the picture. When Jesus went to the cross, and Matthew quotes this or references this in his account of Jesus' crucifixion. When he died on the cross, the Bible says that the curtain in the temple, the the same curtain that was in the tabernacle, the curtain that was in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So that that once a year place that the high priest could go in and offer a sacrifice, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, letting us know, letting all the readers know, that now there's access to God through Jesus Christ because He's the one that went there. And in this case, I don't think it's that Jesus went to a physical temple on planet Earth in Jerusalem. He went to a heavenly temple, the heavenly Holy of Holies, went behind that veil tore that veil, and he enters, watch this, as a forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner. What does that mean? Jesus went there ahead of us so that we could go there. The reason the promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, the reason he is the greater promise, is because, folks, hear this, as great as Abraham's faith was, as great as Noah's faith was, And we're going to read about their faith in Hebrews chapter 11. As great as David's faith was, as great as their faith was, as glorious as it was, you and I have more access to God today than they ever did. Because we have access to God through Jesus. You don't have to come to a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a priest, and receive absolution for your sins before you talk to God. You don't have to go to a Catholic church and go to confession. You don't have to do that at a Baptist church. You know why? Because Jesus is our forerunner who has made the way possible for you and for me to go directly to God. He's our hope. He's our encouragement. He's our direction. He's our priest. Christian, we can be anchored in hope because Jesus is the greater promise. But how many of his promises, how many of his assurances are we leaving behind unbelieved in because we haven't read them, thought about them, or taken them at the value at which God has given to us? Let me close with this story. Many years ago, there was an elderly lady who wanted to leave her last will and testament to a nephew that she loved. And part of her will read this, To my beloved Stephen Marsh, I bequeath my family Bible and all it contains, along with the residue of my estate after my funeral expenses and just and lawful debts are paid. When everything had been settled, the nephew, Stephen Marsh, received a few hundred dollars from his aunt's estate and the Bible, and he went on to continue living his life. The problem was, Stephen Marsh was not very wealthy before his aunt died, and he continued to live the next 30 or so years of his life in poverty. Eventually, he had to be moved from the place where he was living to live with his son in order to live out the last days and years of his life. And in the course of that move, he, he went up to an attic where, where he had stored that old Bible that his aunt had bequeathed to him. He was, started flipping through the pages of that old Bible. And in those pages, he found $5,000 worth of banknotes that had been sitting in that Bible for 30 years. Because when he received that Bible, he did not 
take into account the promises that his aunt had left behind for him. Now, you're not going to go home and look at a Bible that your grandmother or your mom or your dad or your, your aunt left to you and find thousands of dollars worth of promises in it. At least I don't think you are. If you do, I want to hear the story. But how many of God's promises are we neglecting because we won't open the Bible and just trust that he's with us? Christian, be encouraged. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. The promises that he has given to us in his word, we can take to the bank. We can cash them. We can depend on them. It's our obligation to believe in those promises. And that's where our hope and assurance comes from. If you're here this morning and you do not yet have faith in Christ, let me encourage you to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. There is no hope outside of Jesus. He went to the cross so that your sins can be forgiven, so that they can be washed away, so that you can enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you want to trust Jesus to be your Savior, I'd love nothing more than to talk you through how to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He is the greater promise. He is the hope of eternal life. If that's you and you'd like to come forward at the invitation, I'd love to talk to you. If that's you and you don't want to come forward at the invitation, that's okay. I'll be standing out back as you leave. I'd love to talk to you then and there. Christian, take courage, take hope in the steadfast, glorious, faithful trustworthiness of our God through Jesus Christ. Believe his promises. Stand with me if you will. Father, we come to you in these moments. And Lord, how, how much we have to honestly admit. Sometimes like Abraham, our faith goes up and down. There are times that, Lord, we don't experience the assurance that we're promised. Because we're not trusting you as we ought to. Forgive us for that. Lord God, help us to find the help in you and the assurance in you and the anchor in you that you have provided in these glorious truths from Scripture. Lord God, for the one or the many that are in the room today that they are struggling in their faith. Lord God, through your son Jesus, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would touch them in a very real way with the fact that they can believe in you. They can count on you, and you haven't left or forsaken them. Father, for the one or the few in the room that have not trusted you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would show them you are great, you are Savior, you are Lord, you are worthy of being followed, being believed. And I pray, Lord, for their conversion and their salvation, today or in the near future. Have your way in our hearts and lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 